Well, well, well. Hello, hello, hello. Oh. Mr. Sky, how are you doing? Give me one second. My phone on Do Not Disturb. All right. I'll give you a second. Give me a thumbs up when you're ready, and I'll bring you right back. He's getting things ready, and we got a oh. thumbs up. There we are, Mr. Sky. Look how at are you, brother? Multitasking. I am good. Oh, yeah. I'm so, I'm so damn busy. I have no choice but to do things from the go. I love it. I love it. This makes me excited because you're on the go. You're going to do this interview and you're going to go continue to run for mayor. Well done. Well done. Well, thank you for joining us. Where are you driving to right now? Well, I just came from a, uh, a supporter's house and I'm actually just, I got a, as my, everyone knows, my number is public. And a woman who was in kind of dire straits contacted me, a single mom, just asking if she could get some help with groceries for the week. And I'm really late for everything I got to do, but I couldn't say no. So I'm on my way over there to take her grocery shopping as soon as I finish with you. Oh, and then I got to. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> this, is, this, is kind of, this is just kind of how life happens. I got to fit things in that I never had planned in the schedule, but I couldn't say no. We got to make it happen. So. I'm going to make Thank it happen. You. Thank you, Chris. Well, that's awesome. You don't see that from normal people, let alone someone who's running for mayor. So congratulations. That's pretty cool, bud. So I'm going to hurry up with you then because I don't want to keep her groceries waiting for too long. Uh, but Don't do worry. I think, she'll, I, think she's, I think she's okay to wait a few extra minutes if she has to. <laughs> that's a good man. Okay, cool. So, well, we have about an hour. Do you still have about an hour for that then? Yes, yes. Excellent, excellent. So first, Chris, what I want to do is I want to kind of take you, us through the journey of Chris Guy. So before there was a Chris Guy, there was Chris. And before you became mayor, before you became a pub public figure, you were a dude just like the rest of us, probably liked hockey, probably liked to get physical, probably liked to get into stuff. So why don't you take me to the Chris before you became Chris Guy? And let's start there. How old were you before you decided to get into like the public space? Well, people have been calling me Chris Sky since I was about 15 years old. So that's not a new name for me. And they were calling me Chris Sky because my family business is called Sky Homes Corporation. So since oh. I was a child, I've been working there. And since I was about 18, I've been uh, working in conjunction with the government because that's when we started doing development. Before that, we were a building corporation for low-rise residential. And after I graduated high school and I had gotten a couple scholarships to different parts of universities, I started going to school for sports medicine. And at the same year, uh, we had the opportunity to do our first development. And to me, development was a whole other animal besides building. Because now you got to deal with politicians. You got to actually shape communities. And this was a big deal for me. So I decided to leave school after the first year, even though I had exemplary marks in the course. And mm -hmm. I pursued development full time. So I'm not only uh, highly qualified for this position because I'm not a politician and that's what we need. Sure. I'm highly qualified for this position because I'm in a unique position where I dealt with the government basically my entire adult life in mm -hmm. every relevant municipality for this election and beyond and in every single department relative to what would be manageable for a city from the zoning, development, building departments, the environmental, the traffic, the engineering, the urban planning. I've dealt with every single department, every single project that I've done. And the best part is I've dealt with them efficiently because mm -hmm. I've had to deal with them and stay on my budgetary and timeline constraints associated with private sector work, which is unheard of in the government. I was the kind of guy that if they told me it would take six months to get it done through the, their public channels, I'd get it done in six weeks. 
So why bring that kind of efficiency from the private sector while working within the public sector? So I bring a very specific kind of skill set, a very specific knowledge. And I was also in charge of creating the pro forma to show the largest lenders in Canada that we deserve to get their money. So I know what it takes to manage money, resources, people. I can get things done in an exemplary amount of time and I can create the oxymoron of an efficient government. That sounds like a good start for sure. So you also got the finances. You know how to sit down with investors. You've spoken to bankers. You know how to handle stakeholders. You know how to deal with people that have irresponsible uh, activities and also um, unrational requests. So have you had a situation where you sat down with, let's say, a counselor and they were being completely ignorant or completely wrong? And then you had to work through that and get what you needed in the end. Like, do you know how to navigate these guys? Many times. That's what's called diplomacy. And in, in, in the private sector, we call it doing business. In the public sector, they call it diplomacy. But I can get I, I've dealt with people, like you said, from the, the heads of banks all the way down to, to homeless people on the street. And you just have to deal with everybody with the same modicum of respect and be truthful mm -hmm. and show integrity in class with everybody. And you'll always go far and you'll be able to get your agenda done as long as it's in the best interest of everybody. And everything that I want to do, all my platforms, I call them win-win-win solutions because they're mm -hmm. good for the private sector. They're good for the public. And they make the government come out smelling like roses every time. So if you create solutions that make everybody win, it's pretty hard for people to criticize you and it's pretty hard for people not to emulate you. And that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to first set a new standard for what a public a servant is supposed to be. And notice I said public servant, not politician, because right. right. oddly enough, and I have a screenshot to prove this. I made a video a couple of weeks, probably about a couple of months ago now, a month and a half ago, where I said, I am not a politician. I am a public servant. And I go around and I explain the difference. And as I mentioned, there was on the City of Toronto website a, a page called the City of Toronto Charter. And it went word for word and explained the civic duties and services of required of our public servants. And they did not call them politicians. Yep. And since I put that video out and it's almost word for word identical to this charter that I had never even seen before, that is now not available online. Thankfully, we screenshotted it. They literally took it off the website. Oh it's insane. God. It's 1984 where they're just erasing history as soon as it looks bad for them. Not just like erasing this. history, they're redefining words. Look what they did in COVID. They redefined what a recession was. They redefined yeah. what a vaccine was. They redefined yep. what herd immunity was. Everything. Yeah. Everything. And that, and if you, uh, if anybody's up to speed on Orwell, he said that the the prospect of leaders being able to rewrite history or change the definition of words frightens him more than nuclear warfare because it could cause up, it could cause more damage to society by unraveling everything we know and, and everything that's true. Then that's exactly what's happening, including with gender and other issues like that, confusing everybody uh, on it, taking away the words. Thank you. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to segue into Soji, sexual orientation and gender identity. And yeah. isn't it funny that I'm pretty much the only candidate for mayor, not only talking about this, but telling people what it actually is, explaining how dangerous it is. I organized protests against it in Alberta before I even was running for mayor in Toronto. I took it all the way to the head of the education minister, Adriana Lagrange. And mm -hmm. I've been very well educated on soji and i believe that any parent 
guardian or any civilized and normal human being that gets educated on soji will not want children exposed to this indoctrination this confusion this propaganda that's designed specifically to basically take away parental rights and install the state as now the number one influence in the child's life the state loves this because they get control they break up the family they make parents irrelevant and they get these wonderful little useful idiots that will go along with every single agenda the state parrots because now the state made them a special protected minority. Oh, you're special. Mm -hmm. You're going to get special privileges. We love you so much because you're so special. So, of course, they're going to trust the, the government. Of course, they're going to do everything the government says. And that's exactly why the government loves creating this LGBT in our children. Because LGBT is sexuality. Sexuality yeah. and children should not even be in the same sentence, let alone being taught to them on a daily basis. We should let kids be kids, grow up how they feel, and when they become adults or at least go through puberty, then they can decide what their sexuality is, let alone their preferred gender identity, which is also ridiculous to teach children as young as six that they can be one of 76 and forever expanding known genders. Mm -hmm. No, that's insane. Absolutely insane. And what the government has done is they created this class called mature minors. Are you familiar with that term? Yes, mature minors is a new class where they're trying to say that minors will be able to consent. It's their way of yeah. getting around age of consent laws. And it's disgusting. And there's yeah. countries like and there's countries like the Philippines right now where the age of consent is only 12 years old. So these people, and we call I use that term loosely, people, they get their kicks by going on these what they call sexual tourisms because they can be a 50-year-old man fly into the place like the Philippines and buy a 12-year-old little boy or girl, and it's completely legal. No kidding, and that's insane. And they're also extending that to maids. So you're familiar with maids where children or mature minors, if the government allows that classification, can also decide to end their life for almost any reason. 100%. And if people don't know what MAID is, MAID is assisted suicide. MAID is responsible for over 30,000 deaths in Canada annually. And now assisted suicide is the third leading cause of death in Quebec. Third leading cause. And as you mentioned, MAID was already available to anybody 18 and older for virtually any reason. You could go in there and say you're depressed because you got uh, your girlfriend broke up with you and you lost your job. And they'll be like, well, have you considered assisted suicide? It's cheap, yep. it's effective, and they literally will try to sell it to you like they try to sell you any other medical product, yep. only it's a product that's literally going to kill you, and it, and everyone seems to be okay with this. And like you said, in February, they met, and the number one thing on the agenda was to try to extend made to what they call mature minors, 16 plus, but in certain cases, as young as 12 years old able to go and end their life thankfully it did not pass but it was not rejected outright either it was basically put off so they could do another round of propaganda to try to convince us that it's a great idea to allow children to kill themselves without parental knowledge or consent yeah and i believe they're going to pass it i think what's holding it back right now is not the mature minors portion it's the mentally ill portion so there's a portion where they were going to let mentally ill caregivers make the decision for the mentally ill that one got a lot of pushback too so they're pausing that whole thing for a little bit now you're familiar with the national institute of health this is anthony fauci's organization down in the states right evil yep. evil organization but yet they said they took a look at canada's plans for mature minors for maids and they said uh-uh you guys are insane you should be doing life 
life-affirming care. You should absolutely not be doing life-ending care. So even an institution like the National Institute of Health, where Anthony Fauci was the leader of it, they said, Canada, uh-uh, you shouldn't be doing that. Now, what's your take on that, that even we have a crazy organization like that that pushes COVID, even they have enough sense in their head to say, leave the kids alone? Well, that speaks volumes. And we know that they're already under scrutiny and under fire because every single thing they said in the last three years was not only patently false, it was easy to prove that they knew they were lying the entire time, especially with the Fauci emails and everything else. So they already have no integrity or credibility, and they're already facing lawsuits after lawsuits. So this is their attempt to try to save face and try to get a little bit of credibility back. So they're like, they're sitting there after they've just been just as bad as everyone else. And now finally, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how crazy these people are. But they were doing everything these people were doing and worse. And now because they're facing consequences for the first time, they're trying to act like rational human beings with emotions. But we're not fooled. Yeah, we're not fooled at all, but it's kind of weird to see Satan himself say, oh, whoa, whoa, no, that's too far. You guys are going too far. It's kind of weird to see him do that. Uh, but it's, I think it speaks volumes as well to just how extreme we've gone in Canada for the uh, progressive left and the progressive uh, lifestyle here, where we will do almost anything to make someone happy, including letting them kill themselves. That's just right insane. Have you heard of Stacey Lockton? He is the first uh, transgender elected state representative. Have you ever heard of him? I think I have heard of him, but I don't know much about him. Well, he was just arrested. Except for the trans thing. That's the only that's the only thing I heard. I didn't read into him or any of that. So, no, he was just arrested on child porn charges. Surprise. surprise. Oh, that doesn't surprise Uh, me. Yeah. So my my response to that was, did you guys not know he was a pervert? He called himself trans. So why are you guys letting this guy in charge and have some sort of access to children? Uh, I guess maybe they're going to start waking up if these elected officials one by one continue to get busted in this fashion. Uh, Do you think Canada is smart enough to pay attention to what's happening in the States and maybe reflect that here? If it wasn't for me, and it wasn't for me organizing these protests, running for mayor, and making Soji a top uh, topic in the debates, nobody would even know about it, let alone talk about it. And they'd be slipping it in under the guise of what they call language arts and physical education. They don't even call it sex ed. They call it language arts because they're teaching you new words, like all the different sexual words and all the different gender identities. And then they call it Mm -hmm. physical education because they're teaching you about your body and how to masturbate and what orgasms are when you're eight years old. And their excuse is that children are going through puberty earlier. So we better go and teach them about sex before they're 10 years old. It's disgusting. And we already yeah. have laws on the books in Canada to fight this. 171.1 and 171.2 are against child sexual exploitation. And it and it doesn't involve sex of any kind with children or even abusing no. children of any kind. It involves ex, it, it involves exposing children to sexualized adult content like these books like these drag queens that are coming in and not just reading for children. Now they're actually coming in and performing for children, stripping down to G strings for children, getting children to plant dollar bills in their G strings. One stripped down. This is not normal. And people want to pretend like, Oh, you need to be open-minded. No, you do not be open-minded when it involves children and sexualization. I'm sorry. No, you're not wrong. So what would be one of the first things you would do? Would you put in some sort of order? Would you ban adult entertainment? children well i would i would i would i would put the number one thing i want to do is create a anti-child grooming task force with the toronto police service and i've already floated the idea out there and i already have officers with more than three decades worth of experience that want to lead up the task force and i have a lineup of volunteers longer than 
a roller coaster that want to actually get up there and instead of giving out COVID fines and fines to people that weren't wearing masks or trying to close people's businesses, these police officers want to stop child molesters. And that's what I want to do. And I'd be able to defund 100% of the municipal money towards SOGI. I would also be able to have the TPS uh, task force enforce these laws that are on the books so anybody who tries to create a drag camp for children or drag shows for children or anything to do with sexuality for children the organizers the performers and anybody who tries to bring their children there can all be charged and that's the kind of canada we need that's the kind of toronto we need we need to start protecting families protecting children putting people and families before politics and agendas and now, and if you don't believe me, like we started with Pride Parade in Canada, then mm -hmm. it became Pride Month. You know what we got now? Season. Pride brother. season. Pride season. And it's in a time where they told us we didn't have enough money for the one day of Canada Day fireworks, but we got enough money for an entire season, 90 days worth of Pride, which they acknowledge is going to cost us over $2 billion with a B dollars. But it doesn't bring any GDP to the city because it's not like tourism gets up there because, oh, my God, did you see they're celebrating pride season in Toronto? We better get over there quick. No, it doesn't bring money. It doesn't bring tourism. It doesn't bring anything good except an agenda that costs us billions of dollars. When, by the way, they're also saying that we're going to have a one point five billion dollar budget deficit this year in Toronto while they're spending an extra two billion dollars on pride season. How about we scale it back to one day parade, save that $2 billion, pay off the deficit and have about 500 million left over for things like social housing and hiring some more emergency service workers. You're making too much sense, Chris. You're making too much sense. I don't know if that's going to yeah, work. They better arrest me again. They better <laughs> arrest me for the 28th time. Oh, and speaking of that, I want to show everybody what I'm wearing. The reason I'm wearing this wonderful Jersey, this is a, okay. Uh, Canadian Basketball League jersey. This is their Niagara River Lions. I got to give them a shout out because they were having a game and they invited me as a VIP guest. They had this jersey made for me. It says Chris Sky Sakocha number 82 on the back, which is my voting number. And they had courtside seats. They were going to give me a shout out uh, and an endorsement for mayor on the big screen. And this was all to be televised on TSN. And it was highly, uh, it was highly, um, promoted so everybody knew about this and then guess what that was the same day the same day that donald trump and i both got arrested and i got my bail release papers by 1 p.m so i should have been out of there by around 1 30. they kept me till nine o'clock at night to make sure i missed the game make sure i couldn't get on tv with the endorsement but i just got the jersey today they sent it to me to my office so i put it on for the podcast i wanted to make sure i gave them a shout out so to the niagara river lions love you guys and i'm going to come to a game after I win this mayoral campaign. Whoop, whoop, right on, brother. And yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, they don't like you because you are too loud and you definitely will out them. You're the biggest canary they've seen since Rob. Um, did you watch Rob Ford? What was your take on him as mayor? You know, it's so funny. I was never interested in politics and that was one of the only campaigns I was interested in because he did it so differently than everybody else and he seemed mm -hmm. like the only real person running. And it's And you know what's so funny? Guess who called me just two days ago? His campaign manager? Well, no, they've been talking to me the whole time, but his, wa his wife, Renata, 
Rob Ford's widow called me because she saw my sign. She's doing very well. She sounded fantastic on the phone. She got my number off the sign and she said uh, she loved what I was doing. She said I seemed like I was tapping into the exact same type of campaign of her uh, of her late husband. And he was one of the only politicians or even I would call him a public servant. I wouldn't even call him a public uh, politician. He was one of the only public servants I actually looked up to because he was like me. He gave out his number to people. My number is right on my campaign signs, my campaign material. And if they called him and they wanted him at his house, he would be there. Just like the people that just called me right before I came on your podcast. They asked me to come to their house and meet the family. I was there. Because that's what we do. We're supposed to be accessible. We're supposed to be interacting with the people on a daily basis. And above all, we're supposed to serve the people, find out what they need and solve their issues. It's really not that complex. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I was there. I lived there for about 20 years. So when Rob was there, I felt that energy. And it feels the same here, Chris. It feels like the same energy. You're getting the same type of support. You're getting the same type of people come out. And you're also getting the same type of hate from the media and the establishment as well. Are you concerned that they may give you the same type of treatment once you get in there? Are you going to get cooperation from the staff in the city? Are you going to have to fire some people? Are you going to have to do some cleaning house before you get some respect in there? What do you think is going to happen? Two very good questions. First, let's address the media. It's funny. I want to show this. This is the Jamaican Express. It's the largest ethnic newspaper in Canada. And they saw fit to put me on the cover this month and even do a two-page split inside. And ironically... The last political figure that was ever able to grace the cover of this amazing newspaper was Rob Ford in 2014, the year he won a historic landslide victory. But with regards to actual uh, the mainstream media, I am completely not just blacklisted from being talked about on the media, not just having all kinds of government funded websites slandering me like the local like Wikipedia, uh, like antihate.ca and others. Uh, well, I'm completely banned from advertising on the radio, the TV, most advertising billboards, all the buses, all the TTC. They simply will not call us back. They simply will not even take our money. And they thought that they basically have con- have bought out and weaponized the mainstream media. The mainstream media is now used as uh, what they believe is an arbitrator of elections where they get to pick and choose specific candidates that are now viable candidates to the public. However, the betting websites tell the best story because they mm-hmm. they actually use AI algorithms from Google. They check every search result. They check every social media post. They check everything. And guess what? On Bet365, which is one of the only betting websites that even includes me as an, a viable option, I went from 50 to one odds to five to one odds only behind Olivia child, literally overnight, because that's the reality. And I told everybody within the last week of this election, just like a racehorse, I was going to emerge as a top candidate, have the momentum that won't be stopped and basically just sprint off into the sunset with this election. And that's exactly what's about to happen. And are you going to, and with regard, sorry, and with, Sorry. And then with regards to me getting in uh, and with our media campaign, before I get to the the second part of your question there, we have we have concentrated all of our donations and all of our uh, funds for this last week. And we have now 25 giant billboards across the city, eight normal billboards, 15 digital, including Young and Dundas Square, Young and Eglinton on the Gardner. We have over 2000 more signs being deployed this uh, and we have up to a million robocalls going out over the next few days. We have our barbecue tomorrow. We expect thousands of people. So this is our last big push and we're going out with a big bang. And we believe 
we're going to win a massive landslide victory for two reasons. There are now 1.9 million registered voters in this election, more than there were in the 2022 election, which has never before happened in history for a by-election. Mm-hmm. On top of that, in the early voting, we saw more total votes in this by-election, 130,000 versus 110,000 for the 2022 election, which was mayor, deputy mayor, all the councillors, etc. So we are already on pace for the first time in history where a by-election has more votes than the actual election did this. So we're right. We're on the pace to break all these records and we're uh, and we broke another record with how many candidates are involved. And we broke another record with how many registered voters there are. So there's another record we're going to break. How many people do you think are like me that are unregistered, but eligible to vote answer over half a million of us. So 99% of those people are supporters of me. How many of them are going to go out and vote on addition to the 1.9 million registered answer? That's the billion dollar question. But I personally believe that a lot of those people are going to go to their voting station, bring a couple IDs, register and vote at the exact same time. And I believe we are going to get a massive landslide victory. And once I am elected with regards to what we have to do, it's going to be very easy. Every solution, every solution I have to the problems that these politicians created, like I said, it works for the people, it works for the private sector, and it makes the government come out smelling like roses. It's going to be very difficult for counselors not to go along with what I want to do because it's going to be helping everybody. And the ones that don't go along with it, well, guess what? Now we just have a nice little, uh, we just have a nice little press conference. And we get the people involved and we out all the counselors that are voting against the best interests of the people. And at that point, we're going to get a declaration created where all these politicians are going to sign a version of that city charter that states that they are now public servants and they are going to be holding to all those duties that are that are exercised in that charter. And whoever doesn't sign it can sign the other document, which will be a resignation. (laughs) And we're going to clean the swamp. We're going to clean house and we're going to change the attitude from politicians to public servants. And now we're finally going to have an administration that puts people and families first. That's awesome. So with the gender thing, you're not going to do an ordinance. You're going to, you're going to talk to the police and get them to actually do the laws follow the criminal code and and lay charges. Um, What are you going to do with the media press uh, inside, like the press gallery? Are you going to do any changes there? Because clearly, honestly, I believe believe that we need to do away with the mainstream media. It either needs to be uh, taken away all government funding and let them survive on their own. And if they can't survive because all they do is lie, then they go bankrupt. Because right now there's two medias. There's the alternative media and there's the mainstream media. The mainstream media is nothing more than an extension of the government. Let me say that again. The mainstream media is nothing more than an extension of the government. They shouldn't even even have different channel names. They should all just be called Trudeau's media because they all get subsidies that pay the wages of their employees. And if they did not get those hundreds of millions of dollars and billions in some cases overall in subsidies, they would go broke. And then at the same time, the government saying, well, we're only paying their employees salaries. We're not paying them to make content. So we're not controlling their content. If you own a business with a. I'm pretty sure I have a pretty big control over what your business is going to be doing. 
And that's exactly what the mainstream media is. And then we have the alternative media that somehow thrives with no money. And rather than having an audience, there's an actual discussion. How many mainstream media articles say comments are closed or comments are, are not available because all they do is lie and they don't want people to be able to discuss it because then they'll be able to expose the lie. Meanwhile, when you go to an alternative media website, discussion is encouraged and you often learn more in the comments than you would in the article alone. So more and more people are migrating towards alternative media, especially as the older people, the boomers that were already watching TV before computers were a thing are actually getting really old. And even people 45 and 50 are well-versed on computers now, and they'd rather mm. get their news from the computer than from the TV. The mainstream media is dwindling and going broke for a reason. People are not watching because they're being lied to, and people are not stupid. They've been lied to every day for the last three years. They don't think the media just started telling them the truth all of a sudden. No, you're not wrong, and I believe that's why C-18 exists. So Bill C-18 was for the purpose of raising money, getting the media some more money out of the public or distributors like Facebook, et cetera. So how do you feel about Facebook telling them to go take a hike and we're not going to bother doing that? We're just going to remove it. It's it's good in a way. It's bad in a way because now they're going to use this as an excuse to fuck. Uh, sorry, to force these social media companies to start trying to self-censor all the content because they're going to be held responsible. So now you're going to have these big companies, multi-billion dollar companies that are going to be liable to the government. So now they're going to be walking on eggshells and we're going to be it's going to be like a minefield out there. Every any word you say that you don't, they don't like, they're going to censor and they're going to have justification and they're going to be able to say it's not us. It's the government. It's beautiful because yeah. now they get to destroy freedom of speech with plausible deniability. Well, I think you nailed it because we saw the same thing with the banks during the convoy. They froze bank accounts but said, hey, we didn't do that. The government made us go take it up. Exactly. 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 Meanwhile, the private banks uh, did the exact same thing to someone like Jeremy McKenzie and the exact same thing to someone like me. I went into Royal Bank. And they're a World Economic Forum partner. And this was a couple of weeks after I outed them as a World Economic Forum partner. And so, and they couldn't recognize me. They couldn't identify me. Even after I gave them multiple identities, including the passport that I had used to open the account. But they still <laughs> pretended they couldn't identify me and called the police on me. And it was the police who came there. And I was like, well, obviously the police identified me. So can't you just give me my money now that the police are here and they've identified me and prove I am who I said I am? Oh, no, that didn't work either. So at this point, the RCMP advised that I should make a complaint with the ombudsman, the banking regulators, which I did. And within two days, RBC got back to me and positively identified me over Skype of all things, with just a picture of my passport. And then within 24 hours after that, I was told to come close my bank accounts and pick up my money because I could no longer be a, 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 a customer at RBC because I reported them for their illegal behavior. That's insane. Actually, that last part really upsets me because they should not have that right. They're a Canadian chartered bank. They shouldn't have that right. And I'm surprised they weren't able to use, I don't know, maybe tattoos as an identifying uh, piece of you. Like, come on. Well, it was really I went to the point where I'm also a Mexican resident. I have Mexican residency. So I brought right. in a Canadian health card, my Canadian passport, my Mexican residency, my Mexican license, my bank cards, my credit cards. I had the phone that was on file. Uh, I accessed the online bank account with my phone that's on file, accessed my online statement for them, had them call the phone to prove it was the phone, had my wife with me with our marriage license 
and her IDs, both American and Canadian identifications, with a lawyer on the phone ready to notarize and, and confirm my identity. And at that point, they still told me they couldn't positively identify me. And then the girl pretended like she wanted to help me and said, I understand this is ridiculous. So if you give me a moment, I'm just going to go call the fraud department and try to clear this up for you. And that's when she took all my IDs and instead of calling the fraud department, called the sure, RCMP please. and reported that I was causing a disturbance in the bank and to try to have me arrested. And by causing a disturbance, they meant uh, quietly presenting my 17 different identities between my wife and I and asking them to give me access to my own bank account. Imagine that. You should have identified as a female and they would have taken care of you immediately. Probably. Yeah, probably. Probably. I didn't think of that. You would have had express. <laughs> if you were vaccinated, you get express service too. <laughs> but I wouldn't uh, be surprised. Bad. Yeah, I'm so sorry you have to go through stuff like that. But so you've now moved away from a Royal Bank. Obviously, they kind of forced your hand on that one. Yeah. Uh, maybe a credit union. Stay away from those charter banks. They're, they're pretty nasty. In Alberta, uh, the credit unions are the best. Alberta credit unions, for anybody listening, Alberta credit unions are the only institutions in Canada that give you 100% deposit insurance guarantee. You can put 10 million to pay you back every single dollar. Meanwhile, if you go to any of the big banks, you're only uh, insured up to a hundred thousand bucks. That's insane. And also Just to so highlight you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then ATB was the one that didn't have any bank closes except for Pat King. So Pat King was the only one, but that was through a civil order. That wasn't through the government order. Uh, and then and they did it at a time. Him. And they did it to him at a time where he needed to access those funds to retain a lawyer. Kid. So not First only did they too. kill your bank account, they tried to stop him from being able to access a lawyer, which should be illegal. But of course, mm -hmm. they can do illegal things, and it's not illegal. No, they give immunity to people, so they can't even be charged later. Like The banks got immunity as well. A whole bunch of people got immunity, and that's insane. I, I think our legal system shouldn't offer immunity. I think that should be a judicial review and approval, not the government's uh, signature. Uh, but uh, I'm running for office, so I can get in there and kind of change it as well. I'm an independent candidate running as an MP. Uh, so in 2025, I'm hoping to go in there and clean some house as well there, Chris. And you're a bit of an inspiration on, on that front. I have a question here. For and that's you, what I'm hoping to be. It's, you made a very good point. Because I'm, I'm trying to teach everybody that you can't change things from the top down. A federal election, uh, number one, in Canada or the U.S., they're so easy to manipulate. Because in the U.S., you have the Electoral College with swing states. So how hard is it to steal four or five states that had less than a 5% difference? Very simple. Right. And in a place like Canada, you only have – they say, they pretend we have more than two parties, but there's only a mathematical possibility of the liberals or conservative winning every single election. So they basically right. just pass the puck back and forth, and the agenda keeps moving forward. However, at the municipal level, without any party politics – you can now get real people with real ideas that are going to help the people and help the communities. And not only does it stop the nefarious agenda of globalism in its tracks, but it provides examples and blueprints for all others to follow. So I don't expect to be the only one running for office uh, out of our realm of people. I expect to start an uprising all around Canada and even beyond at the municipal level where we can do a hostile takeover, if you will, <laughs> from the ground up and actually start putting in policies that benefit the people and benefit uh, the communities rather than benefiting the politicians. People need to understand these politicians believe they are better than you. They want mm. to be your bosses, not your leaders. They've proven this the last three years. 
by telling you that you need to lock yourself at home, close down your business, wear a mask, take a jab, be have travel restrictions, not even be able to go to a gym or a restaurant unless you show your vaccine passport. Meanwhile, they exempted themselves from all those same rules. They were yep. walking into any restaurant. They could go on any airplane. They had no quarantine, no mask. They could go to their gym. They could do whatever the hell they wanted. And they loved it. They loved it so much that they kept voting for more restrictions for you, more freedoms for them, and kept voting to extend this. Now these same scumbag politicians are telling you to give them the keys to the Toronto kingdom because they're going to make your life better when they literally made it a living hell out of a dystopian movie, your reality for the last three years. And who was trying to help you the last three years? This guy. I was on yeah. the street every day. Not only did I tell you exactly what they were going to do before they did it, literally, I also told you how it was going to negatively impact your life. And most importantly, I provided you tangible solutions to every single problem they created. And I'm going to do the same thing within the government. Let's compare my, you, you heard about my experience. What's Olivia Chow's experience? She's got 40 years in politics. What does that mean? What does mm -hmm. that mean? For the last 40 years, she's been getting paid our money to do what? She was a school board trustee. She was part of the House of Commons. Does she have any experience making any decisions or managing anything or running anything? No. Her entire school background was art. The only job she ever had in her life was a sculptor. She made <laughs> shapes with her hands. And that, she believes that qualifies her to manage a $16 billion budget and 40,000 uh, municipal workers and one of the largest cities in the world? Give me a break. Yeah, well, we have a prime minister who's a drama teacher who's liberal with shoe polish. So, <laughs> right? So I guess and, anybody. And, 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 and he's also the biggest embarrassment in the entire world. I've spoken 12 countries around the world. And I've traveled to 40 countries, over 100 cities. And the number one thing I hear everywhere I go around the world is F. Trudeau. Mm -hmm. Everywhere. Everybody despises it? him. Yeah, we should put that into the anthem. We'll put boys and men back into the anthem and then F. Trudeau. I have a question here from an economic guy. Um, he's asking, um, how will you handle a socialist Toronto with the capitalist point of view? The last fiscally responsible mayor in Toronto was Rob Ford, and the media took him to the cleaners. How are you going to tackle that? The media doesn't affect me. If you notice, I'm the one that affects the media. I'm the one that can get arrested, have to make a video, and then the media has to put my video that I created into the media. Do you know any other person, let alone a mayoral candidate, that can manipulate the media, set the narrative, and make them have to use his own videos as part of the mainstream? I don't. So I'm not worried about the media in the least. All I'm worried about is doing the right thing for the people. And the people want a fiscally conservative government. They want smaller government, less government spending. They want a government that creates the uh, conditions that attract private investment and increase revenue in the billions of dollars in our infrastructure, in our transit, in our housing. When you hear all these other politicians talk about their plans, it's always about raising taxes, appropriating a bunch of public money, and then squandering it while they break every promise and then making up excuses for where the money went. Meanwhile, meanwhile, you ask a politician how they're going to raise revenue for the city on top of that, and what answers do you get? Raise taxes, raise fees, raise levies. 
They don't have any idea how to make money. They've never been in business. They've never ran anything. They've never been, like, they've never even know how to pay a bill, half of these people. And you expect them to run a mega city? We can create conditions where investors will invest billions of dollars, create thousands of jobs, increase the GDP exponentially, and surprise, surprise, now instead of a $1.5 billion deficit, we have a $1 billion surplus, and now we can lower taxes for people like our seniors that need it most on a fixed budget. Imagine, imagine just raising revenue the right way so now we can increase services while still lowering taxes. That's what a government's supposed to do, become more efficient every year not bigger and more bloated every year as we have seen because what happens when the government gets bigger and spends more surprise you get less money you get less freedom you get less opportunity and you get longer lines at the food banks so how about we do the opposite and actually make the government work for the people and in the end the people will have more money more freedom more mobility and far greater opportunity Hey, hey, buddy, that's absolutely awesome. And I do hope that you inspire a lot of people to do other stuff around the municipalities. We'd like to see something happen in Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Vancouver. We need a lot of these cities to really stand up. So I really hope you create that mold and that people will follow it. Um, I have another question here for you. In the past, you brought up central bank digital currencies. As mayor, how will you be able to influence monetary policy for the central bank when the federal government can't even control them? So what can you do on a municipal level to help stop, stop that? Well, I hired and created my own Bitcoin team because we believe that Bitcoin education is probably the best way to combat central bank digital currencies. And I say combat because we have to take a firm stance against these because central bank digital currency is inevitably leads to the end of cash, inevitably leads to complete government control over not only what you spend your money on, if you can spend your money, and even if your money is set to expire. So you can never save money ever again. That is where this all leads. And the best way to, uh, to get people uh, educated on this and become steadfastly against it is we found to teach them about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in general. Uh, using Nigeria as an example, and I know people are like, what the hell is he talking about with Nigeria? Well, Nigeria, about 11% of the country uses cryptocurrency. It's one of the highest uses of cryptocurrency in the world. So they decided this is a great place to launch uh, one of the first central bank digital currencies because so much of the population is used to it. What ended up happening was the people, because they were educated on cryptocurrencies, decided why the hell would I ever want to use a centralized government to track and have to approve every transaction I make versus all these private ones. Mm -hmm. And the result was... One out of 10 people using crypto, but less than 100, 300 Nigerians using their central bank digital currency. So how did the government respond? Exactly how I told people they would. They started trying to limit cash. So now right. in Nigeria, if you try to take more than $200 a week out of your bank account, they would tax you on every dollar you took up to Whoa. 20% even for corporations. So people went absolutely crazy in the streets 
And the government reneged on that and put the limit back to $15,000, equivalent to $15,000 a week, which for most people is fine, except for big corporations. So already we know the intent is to control and limit cash and create a situation where they can uh, control every single transaction. So that we already outed it. So we came up with a six point Bitcoin plan to educate and combat central bank digital currencies. And the first one is to educate people on what uh, Bitcoin and crypto is, like I just ex explained. Part two of that is to take a firm central bank digital currency stance, everybody against it, all of the population, so they can't implement it. Part three would be to start implementing at the municipal level ways for people to pay municipal charges, fees, taxes, etc., with crypto, especially right. Bitcoin. So now this will start showing people that it's legitimate, it's not a scam, the government's using it, etc. Part four would be to now adopt this in the private sector. Imagine bars, pubs, clubs taking crypto instead of mm -hmm. paying credit card. Why would they do that? People say, I don't know. Would you want to pay one to two percent of your transaction fees on credit card when you can get cryptocurrency, keep all your money and not have to report it to the government? I think it's pretty, pretty popular idea, especially for people who want to get tips, etc. So I believe it'll be adopted at a grassroots level. Uh, throughout the private sector. That's step four. Step five is to create government areas of investment and stakeholding for crypto, which will further legitimize its use in the public eye. And then step six is to take this infrastructure and make it international with neighboring countries like Ecuador and others that are very highly pro uh, Bitcoin. And we don't want to use Bitcoin because we're trying to push people towards electronic money. No, no, no. We want people to learn how to use Bitcoin so they learn how important cash really is. And when they learn how important cash really is and how dangerous the central bank digital currency is, they'll use Bitcoin, they'll buy gold and silver, they'll use all different types of fiat currency, they'll learn to expand their horizons and expand their asset base and not put all their eggs in one basket. And it'll be it, it'll benefit everybody a lot. That's not bad. So you kind of want to beat them to the punch. You want to educate people. You want to put it into force already, like use it, be able to pay your tickets, uh, taxes and other stuff with it. So there really isn't a need for the central bank to even come in. So if they try and come in, it's going to be kind of messy and dirty and annoying. Like we already got one is kind of your approach. Exactly. And not only do we already got one, we got one that's private, anonymous and instantaneous. And we don't have to worry about the government trying to scrutinize me. So why the hell would I use the government's? And it's also already globally accepted. So why have like an exchange for your Canadian version of one for another one? Exactly. It makes, yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense why we would need a central bank digital currency and, and, and logically. And when the people just get a little bit of education like we did right now, they're going to say the exact same thing. Why the hell do I need a central bank digital currency? Answer, you don't. You really don't. And you don't want it. It's that simple. Well, I'll give you one reason they want it. They can cut the banks out for shutting off your accounts this time. They won't have to go through the banks next time. That's exactly why they want it. The banks are actually of course they want to be they want to be able they want to be able to turn you off like a little blip on a screen. Right now, you're an individual with rights and freedoms, and when you have cash, you're independent. You can barter, you can trade your cash, you can even trade work. But as soon as you're all on a central bank digital currency, you say something they don't like, they flip a switch, and now you can't even buy anything. Yep, no gas for you for a week because you bought too much, that kind of stuff. Um, no meat you know, for you because you're too, you have too many muscles and we want you skinnier and weaker. <laughs> yeah, but you got credit for crickets, so you can go get your cricket meat, no problem. Uh, they have a lot of that for you. It's insane. So about 20 years ago, I was involved with a waterfront project called the Smart City. So a long time ago, 
Google and some other companies in the GTA area were getting together and starting some development on the waterfront. That project's been going around for a long, for a long time now. Uh, I believed at the time, and I was very against it, is why I dropped the project early. And I know a lot of the people that got in early got out as well because they started to understand where they were headed with that. That was the blueprint for 15-Minute Cities. That was what yep. they were prototyping. Uh, and they were doing that right there in Toronto on the waterfront over by the docks or Sound Academy in that area. Um, first of all, what's that project like now? Because I've, I've disconnected from it. I don't know. And uh, what's your take on being the template for 15-Minute Cities and seeing that thing take off? Well, everybody knows that the smart city is, like you said, the template for the 15-minute city. It's the surveillance city where they get to watch and monitor everything and control everything. And when it came out that that's what it really was, they lost all the all the um, all the uh, interest in it. And so then they had to rebrand it, and they came up with this 15-minute city garbage. And in fact, in 2019, they declared a climate emergency in Canada, just like they declared a COVID emergency in 2020. Only it was far more quiet. And nobody knew about it. Then in 2022, they adopted a new climate change zoning bylaw, which paved the way to 15-minute cities. Because in that zoning bylaw, they want a 75% private vehicle reduction by 2030 to fight climate change. And that is the pillar of the 15-minute city idea. Right. So they're going to be building all these new developments based on the smart city. It's no different than the smart city. The mm -hmm. hallmark of the smart city with and they were told they were going to LEDs because it saved electricity. In reality, they communicate with each other so they can track people and even spy on you, anybody at any time. So when that all got scrapped, guess what? The World Economic Forum rebranded everything. They called it 15 Minute City. Phillips closed down that that part and they rebranded themselves as Signify Lighting. Mm -hmm. And Signify Lighting is really Phillips. And it's all about these smart lights. And they're actually on the World Economic Forum website. And sorry, someone yes, just walked sure. by and recognized it the parking lot. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> like, yeah. So they're on the World Economic Forum website. And cities like Edmonton, which have already been declared 15 minute cities mm -hmm. and already been cut up into 15 districts like the Hunger Games, has already had 80% of their street lights transformed during the pandemic into these smart lights in, in uh, preparation for this. So they are literally creating these prison grids all around us where they can monitor. Yeah. And now they put these things between the districts with actual barricades and traffic cameras to monitor your license plates. So if you can drive, they did this in England. They're saying they're not doing it here, but obviously we know they're going to do it eventually. They monitor you as you drive in and out of your area and if you drive in and out of your area too many times or at a time when you're not supposed to they will actually find you and mm -hmm. then on top of that it's all designed to get rid of your automobile so all the new developments all the way up into 2019 a new development would have to have a minimum amount of parking for the building and the and infrastructure for the surrounding area and future developments and expansions now under this new by bylaw to fight climate change it's maximum numbers of parking so you'll see buildings with 500 residences, offices, retail, and you're supposed to live upstairs, work downstairs, go to the gym, everything all in the same building. So you don't need a car. And then for the whole 500 units, plus the, plus the office and retail, they might have 100 parking spots if you're lucky. So not even one fifth of the building will have parking, but they right. have a whole bunch of parking for your bike. 
Because why? They want everyone in the city to be on a bike, which is fantastic because then five months out of the year when it's too cold, you're going to be on lockdown just like you were with COVID. But it's okay because everything you need is in your building. So now for five months out of the year, the average person that's living downtown won't even leave their building, let alone their block. And then if they want to leave their block, it's only going to be when it's nice enough weather for them to take their bike or they want to navigate public transit because they're not going to be able to own a car. Everybody keeps saying, how are they going to take away your car? How are they going to take away your car? Well, when every new development makes sure that there's not nearly enough space for cars and they're replacing buildings by the dozens as we speak, surprise, surprise, it doesn't take very long, a few years, and we're already going to have much less cars. And the worst part about this is it's not only designed to destroy your mobility and destroy your way of life, it absolutely cripples and destroys small business. Every time they take a street that has car traffic and they remove the car traffic and put only bike and pedestrian, every single small business on that street goes broke. Why? Because when you have car traffic, now you can have a customer base from literally hundreds of kilometers away. And these people will drive from the suburbs to downtown to get your special product and pay a premium for it. Meanwhile, now you know they can't drive there. So now your only customers are the ones in the immediate vicinity that can either walk or bike there. So they've just shrunk your potential customer base by over 90%. And it's customers that aren't even your demographic because they just happen to be there when you otherwise had customers that were going there specifically for your business. So what does that mean? All the small businesses closed down. And what does that mean? All your little 15 minute cities are almost identical. They're all going to have the same restaurants, the same gyms, the same everything. So now you have even less reason to go from one district to the other. It's all designed to make humans occupy less and less and less space. That's what it is. It has nothing to do with convenience, nothing to do with wanting better for you or a better quality of life. It's about getting you used to living a prison style life where virtually half your year is going to be living inside a building. This is insane, and I actually see a major problem, and that's going to be in the case of emergency evacuation. You don't have enough lifeboats. This is going to be like the Titanic. There's not enough lifeboats or cars, in this case, to get everybody out in time. If only one out of every five people have a vehicle, you're screwed if there is a flood or a fire or nuclear something headed your way. Good luck getting out of that uh, concrete. Don't mention that to them. Don't mention (laughs) that to them. Yeah, that's insane. And I'd like to point out another thing. I'd like to point out another thing. I'm not anti-environment. I believe we got to look after pollution. I want to breathe clean air and, and drink clean water, et cetera. But whenever you hear a green agenda, take note that every time they tell you something, it always ends up costing you money and your freedom and your mobility for the so-called greater good. I have solutions for the environmental issues that actually provide revenue to the city and don't impact the citizens way of life negatively at all. For instance, We have a garbage crisis in Toronto. Our landfills are full and they want to create entirely new landfills because they have nowhere to put this garbage and garbage is a massive problem and it's bad for the environment. I've already been in contact with high technology firms that can offer me specialized incinerators that create no bad emissions, but they do create from the heat clean energy that we can then put back into the grid and sell. So not only are we solving the environmental issue, now we're providing massive amounts of clean, free energy to our grid that needs it more than ever. These are just one of the examples where you can go green 
and actually help society create revenue and make people's lives better. Whenever they want to go green, it's always a way that's going to reduce your standard of living, cost you money, and make you have more controls from the government. And that's called an agenda for a reason. Oh, whoa, that's what he just literally said right yeah, there. That person literally people. read my mind. Yeah, that person's my wife, so she did a good job there. We talked. Holy crap! Before. She's, yeah, that's totally some synchronicity right there. <laughs> no, folks, it's not scripted. No, that wasn't a teleprompter thing. That was a genuine comment. And yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about for sure. Um, well, yeah, they call it the green agenda. So that's why I said they call it an agenda for a reason. Because an agenda is all about making a certain thing happen, regardless of the evidence, regardless of if it's actually for the better. It's just about getting that result. For them, the ends justify the means. So if they got to lie to you and say that you're all going to die by 2030 if you don't stop eating meat forever, they'll say it because they think it's going to scare you into submission. What did, what did Greta say five years ago? She just deleted We'd the tweet. In five yeah. years, we're all going to be dead. And it's five years later and nah, no one's dead. <laughs> No, no one's dead except her prediction. It died quickly there. Um, yes. You guys, yeah, you guys have a massive produce hub there. I remember there, there's a really big one there. And there's a lot of produce that comes from across the border and far away. Would you do anything to try and get produce locally within 100 kilometers from the farms locally, bringing more stuff into I the city? I can't believe versus... you said that. I can't believe you said <laughs> that. We have a massive... We have a massive plan for the food because the number yeah. one cost for our food is the import because you're paying taxes, especially carbon taxes, carbon tax on planes, boats, uh, trucks, etc. Imagine this. We have so many industrial areas within the suburbs that are now derelict and unused. They can be repurposed for indoor growing centers where we can now grow organic fruits and veggies 365 days a year and all of these industrial areas are right beside local railways which can Perfect. then locally transport the food negating virtually all import fees and all taxes and allowing people in scarborough to get locally grown organic strawberries in january for a fraction of the friggin price increasing availability increasing overall food quality while drastically reducing the price they could have been doing things like this for years but they don't yeah. because they don't care the more chaos they create the more control they create the more good stuff i create for you the more opportunity i have the more independent you are and the less you need government and the less control the government has and that's exactly what they don't want they don't want yeah. you to have a good life they don't want you to have opportunity they want you to depend on them to survive because then they own you Absolutely, brother. And I think you're absolutely right. There's a way of controlling. And if they don't have a monetary motivator, it's very tough for them to do anything. Uh, but I like the idea that you're going to repurpose uh, facilities that are near railroads that are there anyways. Let's repurpose them. Would you also reach out to the farmers and the, the rural areas and start working closer directly with them to be a supply route for Toronto? A hundred percent. And I'd be, uh, I'd, I'd back them against all the federal regulations that are trying to stifle their growth and, and actually they just close down their farms. I spoke in the Netherlands at the Hague, September, 2022. And I told them all, I got on stage and I said, it's time for you guys to fight back against your government. You can't just take what they're doing against you. I took one of the massive energy bills of theirs that they got. I go, rather than paying these bills, do this. And I burnt it on stage. And I said that they needed to take over the government with the farmers because they had so much support, even more than our trucker convoy in Canada, that they could do it. And now that party is the largest political party in the Netherlands, only like six months 
later. So we they've already proven what I'm doing here, that at the municipal level, you can have a massive impact, massive and almost immediate and long lasting and one that will take root because it's real grassroots and spread like wildfire. And I want to see the exact same thing happen here. Well, that's cool, man. Now, the housing is the next big issue. So Toronto has a really hot housing market. It's very expensive. You have a lot of immigrants moving in there. Your vacancies are low. It's very difficult to get in. Your rent is high. How are you going to start tackling some of those issues as well? Because, you know, it's very difficult to get good housing in the GTA. Bro, this is my specialty. This is my bread and butter. This is what I've done for my entire adult life. What's the number one cost? <laughs> that's right. What's the number yeah. one cost associated with any any house that you buy? Scarcity, scarcity and the market price. No, it's government. If you're paying a million dollars for a house, there's over 30%. So $300,000 of that million is government fees, taxes, and levies. The developer's lucky if he's making a hundred grand on that million dollar property. While the government who's doing no work, taking no risk is making 300,000 on that million. So that's why housing prices are ridiculous. And why is that government cost so high? Because it takes forever and it's ridiculously expensive to go through the rezoning, redevelopment and building permit process. It takes years and years for a big developer means paying years worth of salaries and paying years worth of interest payments. So now those extra costs on top of the extra government costs get added to the home price. So that's why our home prices are so astronomical. And that's also why we can't build enough homes in the amount of time we need because the government's slowing everything down. So we right. want to create a new program that will incentivize really fast, high density developments. And we're going to streamline the rezoning, redevelopment re and building permit process to save developers months, if not years which will make them a lot able to lower the price of the homes and build a lot more homes over the same amount of time, which will increase availability and also lower the price of the homes. So we have two ways of lowering the cost of homes, three ways if you include uh, lowering the government fees and levies. So those three things are gonna be three separate things to lower the home prices. Now that we have lower home prices, the developers are gonna have to give back to the community for getting these incentives from the government and saving all this money. So they're gonna be required to give a percentage of the units back to the government and Good. the government is gonna make these units available to low-income families or single people or students that can't afford exuberant down payments, a rent-to-own program. This Ooh. is going to drastically change the attitudes of young people because when you're a perpetual renter, at the end of the month, if you got an extra 500 bucks, they're going to go party, they're going to spend it because they're not getting anywhere anyway. But if you're a student and your buddy and you are roommates and you're paying $1,500 each a month and it's going towards equity, and you're going to be an owner of that property at the end of that month, you feel like you got somewhere. And if you got any extra money, you're probably going to save it or put it into your future. And now we have young people that by the time they graduate, they're homeowners. They're already ahead of the game. They're ready to get married. They're ready to have kids and they're ready to pass something down to their families. All these other politicians are talking about rent controls and how they're going to get you rental. No, how about we make everybody homeowners again and we get people real future, real equities and something to look forward to. Imagine giving people real opportunity and real hope and a real tangible way to climb the ladder. How many people do you think are going to take that opportunity? And on top of that, it allows the less wealthier families to be integrated into the same buildings as wealthier families, which will lower crime rates 
increase uh, increase integration while reducing segregation and increase equality throughout the city. They're all about inclusivity, fairness, and equality, they say, right? So why don't they mm. like this idea? That's an awesome idea. So I like the idea of incentivizing developers to actually have low-cost housing options. And it's not just rental. It's uh, for purchase. So it's rent-to-own. I think it's a great idea. Are there are there any other cities or models that do that that you've uh, looked at that we can kind not, of uh, copy? Not them? on the scale. Not on the scale we want to do it, and it's so easy to do because if you're in a high end building, even if the units that they're giving back for rental are the same square footage, you can do different finishings in there that would save a drastic amount of money on the cost of right. building those units, and now they become affordable for those people in those buildings. And now you have people living in the same gorgeous buildings with the same gorgeous amenities, and people are going to be happy. And happier people perform and are productive, and they are not, and they're not going to commit crimes, and they're not going to be on drugs, and they're not going to suffer mental health. And that's the biggest problem in our city. We have this massive homelessness crisis because we have a massive mental health crisis that was caused by the government. Yep, COVID yep. didn't put all these people on the street; the government did. And so now, when we go through uh, with our fiscal responsibility and save all this money by cutting the waste out of the budget, we can put money aside for. Housing for the homeless people, because that's like throwing money at a black hole of a problem and never getting anywhere. We need to take an individualized approach and tackle the reasons why people are homeless in the first place, which would be either they lost their job, maybe because they didn't want to take a vaccine or they got laid off. They have a drug problem or they have a mental health problem. So you give that person a place to live and you give them the individualized help they need to get them ready to re-enter society in a positive way. And now all of a sudden they're productive members of society again and they have something to live for and they're not feeling like a burden. And they're not feeling like they got left behind and you're actually solving a problem. You're not just throwing money at it and pretending it doesn't exist. Okay, cool. So now we have a couple more questions because I want to be very sensitive to your time. I don't want to leave anybody hungry. I'm a guy, a nice guy like you too. I want you to get that grocery shopping done. Um, so yes. we have a question here. How are you doing with the older generation? Are they wanting to vote for you? Have you been speaking to the older generation and what kind of support are you seeing there? I'm seeing any older person that actually knows who I am vehemently supports me because they've been around long enough to know that I'm the only candidate that is going to really raise revenue in the city, which is going to enable us to balance the budget and lower their taxes. A lower property tax, number one for seniors is number th the first thing on my agenda. They're the ones that have been in their homes the longest, so they should be rewarded for being homeowners. They're the ones that are on a fixed budget because they're on a pension or some other type of social service. And they're the ones that need to have their money go further. So by supporting me and and me being on inflation by increasing GDP across the board, their money is going to go further, their taxes are going to be reduced, and their quality of life is going to improve without having to do anything except tick number 82. So as soon as they hear about me and as soon as they, talk, as soon as they see one of my videos, it spreads like wildfire. The old, I, I was talking to a lot of assisted living facilities. All it takes is one or two people to know who I am, and within a few weeks, yeah. they're all having meetings. They're all talking about me, and they're all watching my videos. It's crazy because they get it. People get it. There's a reason why there's like 600,000 people like me that aren't registered that never voted. It's because they look at the candidates and they're like, why am I going to vote for any of those people? None of them are going to do anything that makes my life better. So why am I going to waste my time? And it is a waste of time. But in this case, in this case, people know they have a dog in the fight. They know yeah. they have someone that's going to fight smarter fight harder and get the results they want for them. And there's nothing better than that. That's what people have been craving. People love a fighter. 
And I'm not just a fighter. I'm a winner. So people are going to back me and that's going to go right through my administration. I'm going to get the backing of the people, the counts. I'm even going to get the backing of Doug Ford once I get elected. And I've been telling everybody for weeks, you think Doug Ford wants Olivia Chow to get elected? And he literally yeah. just came out a couple of days ago and said she'd be an absolute disaster for the city. So Good. there you go. Absolutely, because I bet you you remind him of his brother as well. Like the real Doug Ford, not the one we're seeing lately, but the real Doug Ford knows knows what kind of person you are and is the right type of person. And I say that I very lightly, yeah, because I did like him, but something happened. Something happened. Uh, I, he got scared. Something convinced him to to change his mind or something. But he got he, compromised and he took the easy way out. He said, "Oh, this is a public health thing. This is beyond my purveyor. I'm just a politician, so I'm going to defer to the public health officials. Let them make all the decisions, and I'm just." washing my hands of this and that's not right you have to take responsibility as a premier and you have to do what's best for the people you can't just pass the buck off to some unelected health official and tell everybody oh you got to listen to them now because i don't know what i'm talking about but that's <laughs> what he did yeah well i'm glad that he's going to get behind you and i'm sorry again that um this media is being so horrible and you've been arrested for crap i i understand that's election interference and i understand that they're playing the game but i know that that's going to spin up a lot more if you get in there so i really hope you stay strong on that front um have a question here from another guy for uh i got some economic questions for you people really want to know uh, i'll do that one in a second there paula um real estate is primarily affected by interest rates artificially suppressed interest rates it has created misallocation of capital and has driven cash into assets like real estate the central bank is a serious bubble blower how are you going to address the monetary policies that are driving real estate prices as mayor well, I can't affect the interest rates because that's a federal thing, but we can create the situation within the city where we have way more people working, a way higher GDP, and increase the revenue of the city. So the city's in a much better position financially, and that's going to make everybody else in a much better position financially. Uh, so that's the best thing we can do for the city. With regards to them setting interest rates at the central banks, I can't I can't do anything about that. That's completely out of my head. But once I become mayor and make your life better in Toronto, you can make me become become PM and then I can do that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I think his question is more like you can't do much about that, but what can you do as a mayor? So maybe more inventory, that kind of stuff. You can lower the prices with more inventory. Well, that's what we already said. We're going to lower the prices yep. with the program that I said by creating more inventory, allowing them to develop exponentially faster, and then having to give certain of the percentage of the unit back to the government to give to the lower income families. So we're going to be helping people four ways there, bringing down the home yep. prices three ways, increasing the availability of homes, and increasing the idea of home ownership to people that otherwise would be perpetual renters. So you understand supply and demand. That's awesome. I don't think Chow does. Of course. <laughs> no, I don't, no think yeah. I don't think she does much. Yeah, go ahead, Padre, that question from Donald. So Donald says, since 1975, we closed mental institutions and put people who will never be independent into the community. Health as a provincial mandate. Health is a provincial mandate. But are you in favor of reopening facilities for mental health? Of course, we need to expand mental health uh, facilities. We need to expand mental health programs and we need to have that individualized approach, not a one size fits all policy because every single person has a very unique uh, case and they all need to be. And, and we need to have the facilities and we need to have the staff. And that's why I'm all about fiscal responsibility so we can save money and not waste it on things like uh, pride season and rather mm -hmm. have mental health available. <laughs> 
Yeah, now an extension to mental health that a lot of cities have to deal with is homelessness. So one of the challenges is homelessness. Now you guys are, you have your problems, but you're not as bad as Vancouver yet. Vancouver's getting really, really bad. Um, what are you going to do to kind of stop this problem from growing, roll it back a bit, and then maybe deal with the problem for real for once? Well, I just answered that. I said we were going to have the money to create the social programs, and then we were going to create uh, housing for the homeless. But as well, we were going to create individualized programs to address the three main causes, which would be losing their job, mental illness, or drug problems. So if that guy needs drug rehab, we give him a place to live in drug rehab, and then we get him into a job. If this guy needs specific job training, we get him job training while he's in government housing, and voila, now he's got a job, and he's giving giving people an opportunity for a job or a career so now they can be independent so creating more jobs creating more housing and uh, making uh, mental health uh, more accessible so those are the three prongs to that one more making uh, mental health a priority and making mental health uh, making mental health in a way that we give each person the individualized specific care they need to solve their specific problems so they can reintegrate into society that's the key the individualized okay. approach. Perfect. So it's not a one size at all, like you said. It's definitely not. Case case. Yeah. And I think that could be exactly where the problem's been because they just get swept together in one big group. That's now, right. And if you got, you can't compare somebody that's a, uh, that's a heroin addict to a woman who was just uh, sexually abused to somebody who lost their job because they got laid off after 30 years. They all have completely different needs. Now, Alberta's cracking down a lot harder on crime. So, for example, we're going to be putting uh, ankle bracelets on people, tracking them more. We're going to take crime a little bit more seriously. Uh, in addition to the gender stuff and the um, uh, sexualization of children stuff that you're going to do with the police on the criminal code side of things, are you going to do anything else around just general crime? Because, uh, you know, you're getting a lot of deaths out there. You know, there's some violence I out think there. We need, I think we need to go after violent criminals more, and we need to protect law-abiding gun owners. Uh, I think people that commit crimes with weapons should not be given bail where they're just able to be actually were violent. Uh, and for people that did nonviolent crimes or like drug possession charges, why are we wasting our money to keep these people in prison? They should be at home so that at least they can go to work and at least be functioning members of society. These are nonviolent people. They're not going to go out there and shoot somebody. They wanted. They, mm -hmm. they were just doing something that the government deemed was illegal. So now it makes no happen. See how many percentage of people are in jail for nonviolent, non-victimized crimes. It's insane. And if we took a lot of those people out of jail, we could save a lot of money. And we could keep the space open for people that need to be there, like the people that are actually committing crimes, shooting people, robbing people, raping people, etc. Yeah. Now, basically everything you said there is going to attract more business to Toronto. But is there anything specifically that you want to do to attract more business itself other than the things you mentioned already? A million percent. And I'm so glad you brought it up because I almost forgot. I want to create uh, with the surplus that we're going to create by bringing in all this revenue and cutting all this waste. We want to create a free or uh, interest free small business loan program tailored specifically. Owners and saw their business go under because of government in COVID. Mm -hmm. If the government shut you down, and you were that you were a viable business for 10 years before that you deserve a second chance you deserve an interest free loan and you deserve the assurance from your government that you will never be shut down and never be impeded by us again and i believe that will attract a lot of reinvestment into the entrepreneur sector which was decimated
And I mean decimated. We lost about 30% of our small businesses in Canada. And small businesses make up 97% of all the businesses in Canada and 70% of the jobs in Canada. In fact, in March 2020, within days of the lockdown, I had already created a nonprofit called Back to Work. And I did an epic interview where I laid out all the massive economic consequences that were going to entail over the next few months. And I did everything I could to save hundreds of individual businesses and families from losing their businesses, losing their homes, and learning to stay open with those ridiculous restrictions. So I know the importance of small business, not only for the economy, but for the family unit. And I would foster an environment in Toronto that would harbor small businesses better than any other place in Canada. And we would see a reinvigoration in that market and it would bring a whole lot of jobs, a whole lot of GDP and a whole lot of excitement back to the city. That's awesome. And you lost a lot of headquarters during COVID. So there's a lot of large companies that kind of move their headquarters out. How would you try to entice those ones back? Cause they are large employers after all. Well, you can entice them back by offer by offering them the assurances that they wouldn't get shut down. <laughs> wouldn't yeah. that make a big difference? <laughs> it's pretty hard to justify owning an entire building when the government's going to tell you you can't use it. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, for sure. <laughs> but it, it doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think over the last four or five years, Toronto's global reputation has taken a bit of a hit. Canada in general has taken a, a hit, but Toronto as well. Uh, what would you do to help to reinvigorate the love for Toronto globally so you can bring tourism back and have Toronto to become a destination that's safe and not full of crazies again. When people see the tangible difference in their community and their lives that happened within the first year and a half of our administration, when people see that we want to bring back festivals like Carabana that brought like $500 million in a few days to the city and we're like the brightest parts of, the, of, of, of summer every single year. We want to bring back festivals. We want to bring back tourism. We want to bring back the fun and happiness of this city. When people see that, P- Toronto will literally be the, one of the top cities in the world once again and we want to expand the infrastructure we want to expand the transit we want to make this a truly world-class city not the one that is pretended that, that people have been pretending it is for the last 20 years we are way behind in so many places we have so much corruption and so much waste and all i see for that is an amazing amount of potential an amazing amount of growth and an amazing amount of creating a higher standard of living for the people that live there. We have the potential to do this and we're going to. That's exciting. Cause I remember Carabana. I was there w- the last few years. It was there. We did the ticketing. We were the company that did all that. And the problem with Carabana is Scotiabank took it over. So Scotiabank kind of received it as the leadership. And then from that point, insurance became a problem because there was some, you know, people get hurt sometimes. And then that's why they stopped it. So you'd like to try, try and bring that back, bring festivals like that. A hundred percent. You can't like, okay. Every time you have a festival, there's going to be, a, there's going to be crime. There's going to be incidents. You have to weigh the good mm-hmm. against the bad bad and half a billion dollars into the city massive amount of tourism and being known as one of the best festivals around the world for 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 caribbean culture is a pretty big thing like i know they're all about pride season but i think we can spare two days for a caravana festival absolutely and i think it's about time that toronto is uh not pride but proud which is a different thing thank you Uh, toronto very different Yeah, it's very. It's got it's got a U in it and not an I, so it's a different type of word, right? I like that. Uh, but I like that. I'm going to steal that. Sorry. If I see that on Monday, I'll be very proud you used it. Don't worry about it. 
<laughs> All right, buddy. Well, listen, I think uh, 365 is onto something. 365 Best is onto something. I don't think uh, Toronto needs Olivia Chow. I don't think that's it's going to actually do anything. I think that will keep the needle where it is or move it towards 15-minute cities and towards more of this chaos. Uh, they absolutely need a canary in a coal mine like you. And I do hope you inspire other people to run all over this place on every municipal level because we need the outspoken, the unafraid, and we need the ones that actually have the effort and the desire to make change. And like you said, be a public servant, not a politician. So, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Go get those groceries and go get that mirror. And, and when you win, you want to come back and, and celebrate with us? Of course. I remember, everybody, June 26, vote number 82, Chris Sakocha. We are going to take a landslide victory and we are going to make this city one that everybody envies around the world and that everybody tries to copy. And look, you're not going to get rid of all your haters, but you're going to represent them. So what do you want to say to those that never were going to come around that you're still going to represent? What do you want to say to that group? I know you guys don't like me because I'd rather tell you the harsh truth and you guys have been programmed to want to hear the nice lie and then get stabbed in the back by the people that you support. So I know, I know I'm harsh. I know, I know I scare you. I know you feel uneasy around me, but I also know you love the idea of me kicking somebody's ass for you. And that's exactly what I'm going to be doing every day. Whether you like me or whether you hate me, I'm still going to make your life better. So. And, and if you need a jug of milk, his phone number is on the signs. Give him a call. Thank you, that's Chris. right. I got you. I love you, you guys. My number is my number is 416-400-9994. Why? Because a public servant should always be accessible to the people he serves. Send him a text, send him a voicemail, connect to Chris. He's going to hear from you and he's there to help you guys. Thank you, Chris. You have yourself a great day and you go, brother. Okay. Love you, brother. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Happy to have you here. We'll have you back. You take care. Cheers.